The Saint of the Wilderness, also known as Sheffy, by Jess Carr, Chapter 3, Part 1. By the 1st of December, Robert obtained a position to which his meager talents seemed adaptable. His brother James did some fast talking toward convincing Andrew Russell, clerk of Washington County, that Robert had a genius gift as a scribe. Robert learned later that Andrew Russell was not an easy man to persuade in spite of family friendships. Nevertheless, upon seeing a facsimile deed that Robert had copied in his best penmanship, the aging old public servant was convinced that never in his more than forty years of service had he seen any better scribe. During Robert's first day on the job, it pleased him that Mr. Russell looked over his shoulder as he worked and occasionally brought one of the deputy clerks who would smile his pleasure at the deft strokes of Robert's tortoise-shell nibs. Although his superiors were pleased with his work, by the arrival of the first Saturday, he had begun to tire of the job. The lump of $3.50 in wages was welcome, but he did not look forward with any particular joy to the coming of Monday. His buttocks were sore uh, from the precarious perch on the high stool for a week's duration, and he realized, too, that each succeeding day would be exactly like the previous one. After work, Robert made his way to Shoti's tavern, where he spoke to some of the wagoneers who frequented the establishment and joined them in a mug of rum. Some of them looked at his clean clothes suspiciously, for they themselves smelled of their own sweat and that of the animals with which they came in contact. Both those men who knew him seemed undistracted by the cleanliness of his person, and their tone of voice was one of brotherhood. The young man who dominated the conversation was not a mule skinner or wagon master, as most of the men were, uh, but a blacksmith whose juvenile good humor uh, made a tavern visit a day daily Tony. Well, what about it, Robert? The county court has obliged us with getting a gun house put up on the public lot, and Captain Stevens is securing all the artillery we need. Are you gonna to join us? Uncle James said before he died that the Texan agitation wouldn't spread this far, Robert argued. Well, now, I ain't doubting Colonel White with a smart man, but there's others who are thinking trouble with them Mexicans will be busting out all over the place. I might just join up, Robert said with a grin. It was no trouble at all for him to imagine himself a part of the elite company of volunteers who would be forming Captain John W. Stevens' artillery company. It was just possible that the patriotic youth of Abingdon might one day march to the Mexican border. Robert looked at the arm of his blacksmith friend and saw there a physical power second only to that of Big Edmund. 
he could visualize with ease this master of the hammer and anvil tamping the hungry mouths of the cannon. Uh, when this bright-eyed, big-jawed smithy grinned at him, he knew that the grin asked the question of whether or not he himself really desired to be a man, a real man. I might just join up, Robert said again, as if there had been no pause since he had made the same statement. Another round of rum passed the lips of would-be cannoneers, and still another until the entire strategy necessary for the defeat of Mexico had been planned and discussed in such detail that victory would be a certainty. Robert left the tavern in a state of alcoholic euphoria, aware of two things. Aunt Elizabeth would not like his being late for supper, and his brother James would growl a firm no at the mention of his possible participation in the volunteer artillery company. As he walked home, his mind was occupied with how best to approach his brother on this issue. Patriotism? Yes, James was not only an up-and-coming lawyer, but a patriot if ever there was one, but perhaps he would join with or without James's consent. Another thought lurked in the back of uh, his mind. A colorful uniform representing the Abington Artillery volunteers might be enough to fool Elizabeth Swecker, even if the wearer still had no whiskers, and that was another round he was going to have with his brother. James hadn't written one word about whether he had located Elizabeth Swecker's family. Robert could go back to the home of her kin near the Holston, but he had been disappointed there once. He would not risk a second chance. Ellen Sheffy's words came back to him then. Maybe Ellen had discouraged James from passing along any information he had learned about Elizabeth Swecker. If that were true, then Ellen was being too motherly and protective again. But then maybe his pining for a girl he had been with for less than two hours was a little silly. And to make matters worse, he had told James that finding Elizabeth wasn't important. Elizabeth might even be married by now, but the thought of it brought a terrible ache to his heart. The chill nights of December forced a clear-headedness as he walked across Main Street to his aunt's house. He could see the White family and Lawrence seated at the table as he ascended the front steps. He washed and took his place at the table, apologizing for his lateness. Elizabeth White eyed him suspiciously, but instructed the kitchen servant to bring his plate. The meal concluded with the same dismal silence that had become normal since the death of his Uncle James. In spite of Elizabeth White's valiant fight to bring back to her table some semblance of the carefree chatter so much a part of former mealtimes, the family drifted from the table one by one, but Lawrence remained to eye Robert disapprovingly, as did his Aunt Elizabeth. You do not honor your uncle's home by coming to his table smelling of rum and animal sweat, Elizabeth White said. Is rum any less honorable than Madeira or Sherry? Uncle James did not object to the smell of those in his house, Robert said. 
There is a difference, and there is a time and place. A drink is a drink, whether it's in a tavern or in a uh, ballroom, Robert argued, and some of your own sons might agree with me. Your tongue seems wedded with unusual wisdom and vehemence tonight, Robert. You will excuse me if I remove myself. No sooner had the sad eyes of Elizabeth White ceased to search his face than those of Lawrence continued the surveillance. You disapprove of me too, Lawrence? We should not add to Aunt Elizabeth's burden in any way, Lawrence said. You are wrong to distress her when her grief still hangs heavy on her shoulders. Neither has she gotten any additional word from Alabama in the last two days. James Lowry could well be dead by now, and she knows it. The implication of Lawrence's words were sobering, and Robert suddenly felt a fraternal closeness to his cousin. Of all the children of his aunt and uncle, he was more drawn to James Lowry, for they had been more nearly like older and younger brother than sometimes hostile cousins. No word from him could mean he's getting better, couldn't it? Robert asked. I hope so, but there's no way of knowing. Word travels so slowly. If anything happens to him, Aunt Elizabeth would just go crawl in a cave, Robert said abstractly. We should know something by tomorrow, Lawrence said. Word will be coming up the river. Robert lay in his bed until the effects of the rum had left nothing but dull head pains and a stinging remorse. If anything happened to James Lowry, it would be like losing his Uncle James all over again. James Lowry had been the one salvation of the whole family. He had stepped into the, his father's shoes, admittedly lacking the skill of a business administrator, but not the courage and benevolence of his father. Nor was energy any less evidence in the younger man, and it was this, perhaps, that lay at the seat of his feverish collapse in the pursuit of his father's business. Well past the midnight hour, Robert's sobriety continued to condemn him to wakefulness. He slipped from his room, feeling his way with familiarity down the hall to the stairway. A beam of lamplight escaped from beneath the door of Elizabeth White's room. He paused there a moment, wondering if she, or if he should knock and try to comfort her. No sound came from the room, but there would be none. His aunt would not be crying, but her dark eyes would be luminous, luminous with passionate pleading to heaven that her oldest and most needed be delivered from harm. Robert turned from her door and made his way down the stairs and to the parlor and the dying embers of the hearthside. By dawn he awakened, chilled in spite of the quilt about him, and a few coals still glowing red. Frost covered the windows, obscuring the daylight beyond. Presently one of the younger servants made her way from the kitchen, carrying a basket of kindling and pine knots. For a moment she was startled at Robert's presence in a place he ought not to be so early in the morning. She stirred the ashes with the poker and added chips of wood until a blaze leaped for the throat of the fireplace. Having gotten a good blaze going, she added several pine knots and turned 
her back to the warmth in a manner that was just like the one she had observed in the refined ladies who visited the white household when no gentlemen were present. Robert observed her imitative antics without comment. Never nobody sits by the hearse side all night lesson they is having love troubles or painin' or in the soul. Ain't that right, Mr. Robert? That's what they say, Robert answered with a yawn. Is you having love troubles? He grinned now at her young brashness. He treasured the lack of formality he enjoyed with all the servants. No, I'm not having any love troubles, he said. Everybody tells me you can't even think about love loving anybody until you've taken a straight razor to yourself a few times. She looked closely at his chin. Well, lousy me, ain't it a shame? Sure as you're born, though, you'll be spouting the same time as the spring corn and onions. She started to run her finger over her his chin, but he backed away in shame. If and you ain't got love troubles, what you painting in the soul about, she persisted. He didn't want to answer, but she still stood there, sincere and expectant. Have you ever been lost, he asked. Lousy me, yes, but I'm on my way to glory now. Hallelujah. I don't mean that kind of loss exactly, but that might be part of it. I mean lost at a crossroads or in the mountains and not know which way to go. Gracious no, Mr. Robert. I ain't hardly been out of this house since I've been born, lest it be to fetch something out of the fields or from a neighbor. You wouldn't understand then, he found himself saying. He turned his face then to the fire, and it felt good. You'd better get some chunk wood to put on the fire, he said finally. She nodded, and he called behind her. I'll get the heavy logs. It's going to be cold today. May even be snowing by midday. He returned with a second log of yellow locust, the first one he had placed on the adrons was popping noisily and sending tiny sparks hopping in all directions. Elizabeth White moved aside to allow the second log to be placed. You didn't rest well either, did you, Robert? I heard you come downstairs last night. No, I was restless. It helps us to be alone sometimes. I remember sitting alone at this very same fireplace many nights and for many reasons, waiting for Uncle James to come back from some of his trips, I imagine. Yes, sometimes. Sometimes it was one of the babies with colic so bad I knew he might not last the night. We lost two babies. Such precious little things they were. Our second child was taken from us four years after I married your uncle. He was a little boy, hardly over a year old, and we lost Mary Young. She was next to Milton and lived not quite a year. Life didn't doesn't seem worth living sometimes. Less to me, it doesn't. Or at least to me it doesn't. And I reckon with all the trouble you've had, 
you've been thinking the same thing. Part of life is trouble and hardship, Robert. Be forewarned. Maybe time will make it easier for those of you who are younger. Abingdon is not a not the wilderness it was when we moved here before the turn of the century. The war of seventy six was still fresh on everybody's mind when I settled this wilderness as a young bride of sixteen. There was a stillness at eventide tied for more frightening than the marauding Indians who stirred up trouble on occasion. Did you ever feel like running away? Yes, many times. I sat by the hearse side often, both crying and praying to see Pennsylvania County again and be under the roof of my mother and father. But you toughed it out, Robert said. Yes, it wasn't easy, but we planted our seed worked it through sunshine and shadow, and now we see it growing and bearing fruit. There is one lesson you must learn from your uncle's life if you learn no other, Robert. Your uncle believed in everything he did. He made some serious mistakes, but he did not fret over them. No mistake he made was great enough to make him even pause before he plunged wholeheartedly into some new enterprise. Believe in what you do, Robert, with your whole heart and mind and spirit. If it is a worthy task and your dedication to it is complete and unyielding, you will wear a crown that neither God nor man will ever forget. I can't ever amount to what Uncle James was. I know that. I don't even want to try. All my brothers do, and they goad me. They've called me everything but the black sheep in his family, and when I make them mad enough, they'll be hearkening to call me that. You are young yet, Robert. Your greatest task now is to see that you do not take the wrong road until you have a chance to come to the right one. Your uncle's death has upset some of our plans, but we will make arrangements somehow to help with your college expenses. Our brother has taken care of helping Lawrence, and I am going to wait for another year if I don't change my mind. Beside, you have, besides, you have your own children to think about. I have talked to Lawrence and James both. Your brother has acted most nobly during this period when my affairs have been so unsettled, but he may be undertaking more than he realizes. We will simply do the best we can, and I hope you will use this year of waiting most wisely. Do your work honestly so that your employer will speak well of you and pay much heed to the company you keep. Robert wondered if now was the proper time to tell his aunt that he was tiring of his position after only a week, but others were congregating in the room now making frequent inspections of the dining room table, so he hadn't the privacy required for such a declaration. The timing would be bad, and would certainly insert, ensure a rebuttal in forceful tones from his aunt. They were all seated shortly. Robert noticed that his aunt was hardly aware that complete silence prevailed, that all eyes watched her and awaited the customary blessing over the food. Finally, her tired gaze turned to them all, and Robert was sure 
he alone knew of her sleepless, prayerful night. Uh, the conclusion of the grace she uttered over their food left no doubt where her thoughts were. And if it be thy will, dear Lord, deliver our son and brother from the pain of his illness and see him safely from that distant land so far from home and those who love him. Amen. The younger white children were prompted by their mother's prayer to ask questions as to why no one knew whether their oldest brother was better or sicker now that the third day had come with no further word. The older children knew without asking. We will not learn anything new unless a courier is sent or until the canal boats come up the Tennessee River with the mail, Elizabeth White explained. Don't they have doctors in Alabama? Milton asked. Yes, child, Elizabeth White smiled lovingly at her eight-year-old. I just hope he got to one in time. I didn't understand the contradiction in the first message, Lawrence Sheffy said. I thought that James Lowry was at uh, the Jackson County farm, but the courier indicated that he was uh, considerably upriver. The courier, who reached us with the fifth or sixth in the relay, relay and afterward has been passed on several times, it always gets mixed up. All speculation as to the fate of James Lowry White ceased by mid-morning of the same day when Robert heard the pounding of swift hooves against the stone surface of Main Street. A breathless courier on a breathless animal brought a message that seemed clear and complete. James Lowry White was dead and had been since the previous day. He had indeed been stricken ill with high fever on his way home from far upriver from Jackson County, Alabama. For over two weeks he had fought the fever that ultimately consumed him. Elizabeth White had spent the night praying for a son who was already dead. Robert did not let the solemnity of his cousin's memorial service deter him from seeking his brother James's approval of his joining the volunteer artillery company, but James thought the occasion not the time or place to discuss the subject in detail and told Robert he would think on the matter and wrote and write his reply. The tone of his brother's voice took on a surprising likeness to that of his uncle. Robert trudged back to his stool and desk on Tuesday, weary from the sight of new bereavement in a household that had not rid itself of an earlier one and was ill-prepared for a second. Now his aunt had not only the memory of a lost oldest son to sadden her, but a feeling of responsibility for a daughter-in-law and her fatherless children. By the day's end, Robert realized that Andrew Russell's probing side glances were not purposeless and that he had copied little on his journal paper. He felt a deep loneliness when he thought of James Lowry dead, the kind of amiable character of one who had tried so hard to span the chasm left by his uncle haunted him in the very midst of activity. He dreaded going home and seeing his aunt try so hard to hold back her tears and trying to give a certain dignity to her fate.
Every day, for the rest of the week, he hurried back to the house, only to conclude that he wasn't needed. His aunt seemed not even aware when he was in the house and when he was not. Sometimes those of his own family circle would surround her, but as often as not she sat rocking with misty eyes that were oblivious to all movement. Almost a week before Christmas, a letter came for ja from James and Marion. Robert had already washed his hands for supper before tearing the envelope open. He frowned as he read the first few lines, and by the time he shoved the letter into his coat pocket and stalked from the house, his face had flushed crimson. Minutes later, he burst through the heavy oak door of Shote's tavern, while the door yet us back and forth from the impact the muscle arm of the blacksmith steadied robert's shoulder cool down a little molly grant said with a twinkle of mirth in his voice ain't nothing in all thunderation that bad my brother doesn't want me to join robert blurted out and held the letter at the nose of his friend what did he say molly asked he said i would have his permission to join only when the Mexicans were sailing up the south fork of the Holston. The darn fool, shouted Molly. Don't he know we're doing, we're gonna have to catch them brown-skinned bandits before too many of them get over the border? He knows all right. He's just clowning me by saying we are making up a war that isn't going to happen. Well, I don't know about that, Molly scratched his head doubtfully. I'll join up without his permission, Robert said, only partially calmed. That might not go. I'm man enough to do my own thinking, Robert interrupted. I've been baby too long. That's the whole trouble in a nutshell. Let's have a mug of rum and then go looking for Captain Stevens. I want to join up tonight. I don't know. That there's any hurry, Molly said, and besides, you don't have to go looking nowhere for Captain Stevens. He's sitting over there in the corner there. Hastily, Robert finished his rum and, backed up by Molly, made his way to the table of Captain Stevens. Robert's first desire to join the artillery volunteers, the captain already understood, but Robert's temperament at the moment caused a furrow in the officer's brow. After some minutes of questioning, Robert told all, I could not encourage you to join if permission of your brother and our other family members here in Abingdon is not for forthcoming. This is not a conscription, and it isn't wartime. But boys 14 and 16 years old fought in the revolution, Robert argued. That they did, Captain Stevens admitted. This is nothing like that, or circumstances would be different. You are old enough, Robert, but the volunteer milita would just as soon not get on the wrong side of the family. If war was at our back door, there would be no question. Them brown-skinned devils might come a-sailing up the Holston one of these days, Molly said comfortingly. Then you'd be in it for sure.
captain said he didn't understand Molly, nor Robert's antagonistic attitude. He pressed Robert about it until Robert shoved the letter in his face. Captain Stevens read it and handed it back. Tell your brother you'll make a bargain with him. Tell him you will agree to wait only until the Mexicans cross the Mississippi. The captain's attempted humor infuriated Robert all the more. All of you think I've got to be 40 years old before there's any man in me. I'll show you. I'll figure a way to show you. He vowed and went to fill his mug again. After Robert's temper showed signs of cooling, Molly soon joined him. Within another minute, few minutes, Captain Stevens stood on the other side of him. I know you're disappointed, Robert, the captain began, but I couldn't help noticing the postscript at the bottom of the letter. I wonder if that might not be the cucklebur under the saddle blanket. Robert sipped at his rum and stared straight ahead. Don't make any difference, he said after an uncomfortable silence. I haven't seen her for a long time anyway. He looked down into the half-empty mug and could almost see the last three lines his brother had written floating mirror-like on the surface of the liquid. As if it were an unimportant afterthought, James had scribbled in crooked lines at the edge of the sheet. Elizabeth Swecker is the daughter of Wendell Swecker, and they live on Cripple Creek in Wythe County. I understand from reliable sources that the girl is betrothed to a young man by the name of Griever, who works at the Chatwell Forge. How shameless he was in hoping, maybe even praying a little bit, that the, this enemy he had never met would rob his employer and be sent away to the penitentiary for a hundred years. Even fifty years would do it. Not even fifty, just five or ten. He would settle for that. And that wouldn't be unfair punishment for a thief who would steal the woman whose eyes were implanted on his soul as surely as he breathed the breath of life. Why don't you go on home now and get some sleep? The captain suggested. You've had a lot of bereavement at your house, and it looks like I didn't make it any easier on you tonight. I'm not sleepy, thank you, Robert said stiffly. Besides, Molly and me might just do a little carousing tonight. Molly looked bewildered. There ain't no place to carouse around tonight unless you're hankering to go down to the uh, tan yard and tear the hides off the drying frames, he said. No, I guess there's not, Robert said. He paused no longer then, and setting his mug upon the polished Chet Snut countertop, he walked out of the tavern. Snow fluttered lightly from the heavens, but he did not hurry his steps. It was late, and the streets were deserted, but several lamps glowed from windows along Main and Court Streets. He went out of his way until he came to the courthouse building where he worked. Insufficient snow had fallen to make snowballs, and he soon gave up the effort, but as a last resort, he gave the corner of the building nearest to his own office a vigorous kick, then trode wearily down the street to his own door. He made no effort to enter 
the house quietly, for through the parlor window he could see Elizabeth White rocking back and forth, watching the snow through the street window. He stepped through the door to the parlor, but his aunt did not change her position, nor acknowledge his presence. He said in a good night anyway, and went to his room. He could not remember saying his prayers for many years, uh, years that dated back to when he knelt beside his bed with Elizabeth White's warm hand upon his neck. But on this night, he uttered a stumbling, tearful prayer to a God he was not sure existed, and asked, childlike, that Elizabeth Swecker be preserved in all her sweetness for him and him alone. Every child and grandchild of Elizabeth White congregated at her side on Christmas Day, a special effort toward family harmony for this one occasion was the unspoken creed that prevailed, but with fragile success the absence of two family members seemed obscured by sheer force of numbers, but it was still with misty eyes through which Elizabeth White appeared to view them all. Robert remained all day with the family group and assisted in their little game. Each took turns asking questions of his mother, grandmother, or aunt, or tried other tactics to keep her mind engaged in happenings of the present. Next time, part two of chapter three.